Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is our text, and we've been studying this for a number of weeks. This will be our final look at uh, verses 10 to 17. So I just want to read what we've studied thus far by way of a context introduction. Paul says this in verse 10, According to the grace of God which is given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, at the end of verse 9... In the preceding section, Paul describes the church using the metaphor of a building. He says the church is God's building. You are, y'all are God's building. It's a plural. Uh, One verse before that, in verse 8, he says that each one will receive his own reward according to their labor. So when you take those two uh, realities together and bring them together, you, you... Paul is essentially hammering, and we've been saying this week by week, a sign in the text, a hammering a builder beware sign in the text as he moves through this section. He says at the end of verse 10, each man must be careful how he builds. And we're not talking about building your individual life here. The text is speaking about the church, the church, the body, the temple, the The building is the church, the collective gathering of New Testament saints uh, in the local church. This is what we need to understand here as he talks about all of this. Uh, We need to beware how we are building Christ's church. We need to be careful what foundation we're building on, and we saw that in verses 10 and 11. There's only one foundation, and that one foundation, of course, is Jesus Christ and him crucified, the good news of the gospel. And we build with God's wisdom. We saw that in the preceding chapters. And we need to be careful, uh, not just what foundation we're building on, but how we are actually building the structure, the, the church itself. Because if we're not careful, as we saw last time, there is a very real possibility that many of our efforts will not stand the Lord's perfecting examination in that final day. And we set a little bit of the context and the timeline for that and how we're to think about that as believers. You and I can build with the imperishable material of wood, excuse me, of gold, silver, precious stones, uh, God's, which is, we said, God's eternal wisdom grounded upon the foundation of the gospel, or you and I can build with the perishable materials of wood, hay, and straw, which we said is human wisdom in all of its various flavors, uh, which is destined, of course, for the landfill of human history. So Paul's concern in this text 
And it's my concern, it's our concern as shepherds as we teach through this and as we go about the work of ministry, Paul's concern and our concern is that all your labors for Christ would be grounded upon the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified, and that they would endure. That is his concern. I do not want anyone here to stand before God in that final day at, we said, what is called the Bema Sea Judgment, which takes place after the rapture, but before Christ's return to earth. I do not want any of you to stand before God in the Bema Sea Judgment and watch as most or all of your ministry efforts for Christ burn down to ash. That would be a devastating thing. I want you and I want my, my prayer for my own life is that I would be able and you would be able to stand before Christ confident, confident in that final examination when the quality of your workmanship in his name is made evident. It's revealed for what it really is. And we want it to remain and we want it to be rewarded. This is a good thing. This is God's gracious rewarding. His rewards are not earned, they're according to grace, just like everything else. But sadly, and as we've been studying through these chapters, uh, the Corinthians, whom Paul's writing to here, they were not building the Lord's church with the imperishable materials of Christ and him crucified. In fact, just the opposite. They were building with the perishable wisdom of the world, and it was dividing and it was fracturing the church, the local church. Their immaturity, which he points out at the beginning of chapter 3, which was evidenced by their preoccupation with worldly wisdom and their boasting in earthly men, was constructing a building of wood, hay, and straw whose fruit was partisan rivalry and strife. It was disunity, and it was setting them up for a forfeiture of future rewards while at the same time hamstringing their present disciple-making efforts. He understood, and Paul writes with this sense of urgency, that God's imperishable wisdom looks, it looks like foolishness to the world. He understood that. But it is actually vindicated by God's power to save and transform sinners. But on the flip side, he understood, and he unpacks this in the previous chapters, Man's perishable foolishness looks like wisdom, but it is actually powerless. It is impotent to cleanse the heart from sin's guilt and its grip on our lives. And yet, even knowing how weak and frail and foolish man's wisdom is, we continue to go back to it. We continue to turn back to it. And we keep asking it to do for us what it cannot do. We somehow think it'll be different the next time. That was true then. It is true now in our churches today. And so we are faced with a choice. There are two ways to build. Two ways to build. We can either build, as Paul did, as a wise master builder, building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, that is the gospel and God's word, in humble dependence on the Holy Spirit and his work, or we can spin our wheels with the perishable materials of man's wisdom. We can trust in our own strength and abilities, and we can boast in men like the Corinthians did, 
But I think we've made the point clear, abundantly clear, which way we ought to go. And the point we've been making is that we need to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ and his wisdom. And uh, the, so we said very also that the way we build is very much connected to the character of the foundation. You know, verses 10 and 11 are literally the foundation of the verses 13 to 15. There can be no church without the foundation which has been laid, verse 11 says, which is Jesus Christ. So the character of the foundation matters. And as we're going to see this morning, the way we build isn't just connected to the character of the foundation, Jesus, but the way we build is also built on the character of what we're building, what we're building itself. If you'll notice the end of verse 9, Paul says, you all are God's building. But we're not just any building, not just any old group, any old building. He says here that we are God's temple. We are God's temple. And he says that in verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The building that we're constructing in the church is not some faceless house among countless others. It is not some random structure of our own design and creation. The church is the temple of the true and living God. And so Paul's argument here in verses 16 and 17 takes a very sobering turn. Not only do we have to be careful how we build or what foundation we build and how we build this building, but we need to be careful how we build because of what we're building, what it is that we're building. The imagery here that Paul picks up in verse um, 10 through 17 of the church as a temple is so important for you and I to wrap our heads around. We need to understand this. Because Paul is telling us something significant about the church. Like this is a, this is a, a doctrine of the church text through and through. And it has profound and far-reaching implications for how we conduct ourselves in the church and how we go about the work of ministry. It matters. Now, for the average Corinthian or the average Jewish believer that Paul's writing to, when you say the church is a temple, um, that image, that word picture, immediately brings a whole host of concepts to mind. It, it communicates a lot. It communicates a lot in the world they lived in. Worship in a temple, whether that was a pagan temple in Corinth or God's temple in Jerusalem for the Jew, Temple worship was a common feature of ancient life for them. But that's not true for many of us today. Not necessarily true of everybody. Some of us have grown up in a context where um, false religion, idolatry, and, and temple worship is a, was a part of your, your experience growing up, maybe, if you lived in outside the United States, perhaps. But for the most part... That's not a world we live in, in our modern sort of Western context. We don't live in the world of temples and idolatry, you know, physical idols 
and whatnot. There are many details of that image then of the church as God's temple that escapes our perception, that's lost on us because we live in a very different day and a different age. And my job as a preacher and your job as the hearer, as the reader, is to take yourself back into the original context and to understand what did it mean to Paul and to the group he wrote to, because what it meant then is what it means now. So we need to pick up all of that. We need to pick up all of the nuance of that. The image of the church as a temple is one of the most vivid metaphors of the church in the entire New Testament. Second, maybe only to the church as a body, as a body. And the richness of this image of the church as a temple, it gives weightiness to Paul's words. It, it's like gold that's been refined in the fire and melted down into bricks. It's solid, it's, it's dense, and it's something of immense value. And so God, through his servant Paul here, intends for us to grasp this full picture of the church. Paul's description of the church as a temple in verses 16 and 17, which is really what we're zeroing in on this morning, calls you and I to a greater seriousness and a greater commitment. It calls you and I to a greater seriousness and a greater commitment because the church is not a human institution. It's not an organization that, that we just sort of, um, we can sort of bounce in and bounce out of. We're not bound together as believers We're not bound together by a common upbringing. We're not bound together by any kind of common ethnicity. We're not bound together by even a common stage of life or any other earthly criteria. What binds the church together is this common spiritual life that we have that has been given to us from the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that makes a huge difference as how we think about the church and how how we operate in the church. So the tabernacle and what would later become the temple is the backdrop from which the Apostle Paul paints this picture of his church, particularly the local church. So as we better understand the temple, and this is where we're going, as we better understand the temple, we will better understand the church. Because Paul assumes that we understand what he's talking about as we read the text. And as I said earlier, as we understand that concept a little bit more seriously, a little bit more deeply, we will understand that there is a great commitment that we are to have to the church and to one another in the church. So I'm just going to give you some headings this morning to help you uh, move through this text. We need to understand the temple. So the first thing we need to understand about the temple is this, that God met with his people in his temple. Again, we're looking at the temple underneath the Old Covenant and the tabernacle slash temple. Every time you hear me say temple, that also includes a tabernacle. If you hear me say tabernacle, it also includes the temple. One was the kind of early version. Temple was kind of like the upgraded version. But first thing we need to say is it was in the temple that God met with his people. In the temple, God met with his people. As God's plan of salvation in the Old Testament unfolds, as it zeroes in on a people, it also zeroes in on a place. It zeroes in on a place. And that place, worship, everything, was centralized around the tabernacle and what would later become the temple. Now, as you read through the Old Testament, 
As we get into the book of Exodus, God's people are now a nation, but they are a nation under bondage in Israel. And God miraculously and powerfully rescues them from Egypt through a series of dramatic and powerful indictments against their false gods. And he brings them out. He redeems them out of Egypt. That's what the book of Exodus is all about. The whole book's about redemption. And he takes them out of slavery and captivity. And the big question that looms in Exodus as we get into Exodus and Leviticus is this. How does a holy God dwell among a corrupt and sinful humanity or people? How does God, in his infinite holiness, how does he dwell in the midst of a sinful, rebellious, corrupt people, which Israel was? So the... Leviticus answers that question. Well, really, Exodus into Leviticus answers that question. And that is that he would do it through the tabernacle and sacrifice. The Lord, who dwelt eternally in heaven, condescends and gives Israel this great privilege of his presence. That is what happens in the book of Exodus He would dwell among them in the sanctuary of the tabernacle and what would later become the temple. Now, we're going to be moving around through the scriptures, so I encourage you to keep your fingers loose and stretched out because we're going to be moving from Old Testament to New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. Exodus 25 and verse 8. In Exodus 25 and verse 8, Moses is instructed by God. He says, let them construct a sanctuary for me. There is no tabernacle at this point, and here's the reason, that I may dwell among them. God instructs Moses to get to work to build a sanctuary for him in order that he may dwell in their midst. If you move on later on in Israel's history, King Solomon now, in 1 Kings chapter 6, in verses 12 and 14... Now, Solomon is in the process of building a temple, and he says this, Now concerning this house, speaking of the temple, which you are building, this is God speaking, If you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. Verse 13, And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and Finished it. Later on in chapter 8 of 1 Kings, same, same book, in verses 29 and 30, he says, Listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward the place which you have said, My name shall be there. Speaking of his presence. To listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. He's speaking about the, tabern- the temple. Solomon was authorized to construct the temple as a permanent location where God would meet with his people. The tabernacle was not just called the tabernacle. God dwelt in the tabernacle for the express purpose of having communion with his people. Hence, the tabernacle was also known as the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. If you've been reading through the Old Testament this year, you'll probably recognize that again and again that term is used. 
It is called the tent of meeting. It's not a different place. It's the tabernacle. In Exodus 29 and verse 42, it, it says, It shall be a continual burnt offering that they were to offer again and again throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. Verse 45, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God. The tabernacle was known as the tent of meeting because it was there that God met with his people. But it wasn't just known as the tent of meeting, it was also referred to as the tent of testimony. The tent of testimony. If you look at Numbers chapter 9, this term is used for one of the first times. In chapter 9, verse 15, on that day, the tabernacle was erected and the cloud covered the tabernacle also known as the tent of the testimony. For in the evening, it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle. The tabernacle was not just the tent of, te of meeting. It was known as the tent of testimony, signifying it was the place where God would reveal his will to his people. It was where God would reveal his will. Later on in chapter 17 of Numbers, as the people are grumbling and complaining and they're saying, well, why is Moses and Aaron, why do they get to do everything for God? And uh, maybe we all could be like them. Maybe, maybe we're, they're not the only ones that should be God's chosen representatives there. And so they, everybody got out their rod and they put it, remember, in there overnight. And Aaron's rod butted. Well, he did that, verse 7 of number 17, it says, at the tent of testimony. It was through that budding rod that God revealed the man and the tribe through whom he chose to have them serve him. So it was under the law, and this is our point, it was under the law that the temple was a place where God dwelt with his people, where they had communion with him, where the people had fellowship with God, where the testimony of his word was given and confirmed. Secondly, not only was the temple where God met with his people, the temple was where God's glory was revealed. The temple was where God's glory was revealed. If you look at, um, read through Exodus from chapter 25 on, once God says, okay, get to work, build the temple or tabernacle, at the end of all the building and all of the consecrating and whatnot, once it's all done, Exodus chapter 40 Verse 33 says, He erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and he hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. After all they had done in creating this tent of meeting, this tent of testimony, this place where God would dwell, at the end of that, after consecrating it and providing the sacrifices, God's glory 
descended in a visible way on this tent. And it was seen. Not only did God's glory descend on the tabernacle, but as you get into Leviticus, we see that God's glory went out in supernatural acts of power. In supernatural acts of power. Because in chapter 9 of Leviticus, verse 6, there was... um, Aaron was to offer one of every sacrifice to kind of set apart the tabernacle. Remember, they lay out a whole slew of sacrifices in the, the beginning seven chapters of Leviticus. And, um, and when he did that, verse 22 says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings, And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is God's glory revealed from the tent of meeting, his glory revealed from the tabernacle. And then if you go into chapter 10, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Again, God's glory is revealed from his temple in acts of judgment. His unswerving holiness led to their judgment for their disobedience. And so my point is that it was in the tabernacle that God's glory was revealed. And you can read about that even more in the book of Ezekiel. Thirdly, it was in the temple that God received the services of his people. So he met with his people. His glory was revealed in the temple, in the tabernacle. And he received the services of his people in the temple. No temple is complete without a priesthood to minister in it. And under the law, God chose the tribe of Levi to serve him as priests in the temple. Now, the word priest comes from the root word for to stand. The concept carries the thought of standing as a representative for someone else. And we have that today, right? We have lawyers. Lawyers stand and represent their clients in court. Well, in some ways, there's a corollary to a priesthood. A priest is one who stood before God on behalf of the people. A priest, in a sense, mediates God's presence to his people. Under the the Mosaic law, Israel was actually to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be a living, breathing testimony and representative of God to the world. And they were given this great privilege of mediating God's presence in the world. Remember, God's plan of salvation is working out through a people. But it was also working its way out through a place, the temple. And there were priests serving in that temple. And the privilege of priesthood carries with it the responsibility of service. The great privilege of having a true knowledge of God and access to God It brought the obligation to serve God. And the temple was where that service worked itself out under the old covenant. Broadly speaking, the services rendered by the priests fell into one of three buckets. One of three buckets. 
First was a service of sacrifice. We understand that. If you have any familiarity with the Old Testament, you know what do the priests do? They offered sacrifices. Burnt offerings, sin offerings, peace offerings, meal offerings, drink offerings. The priests were responsible for all of them. So the first service they rendered was the service of sacrifice. Secondly, maybe this is a lesser known service that the priests offered, and that is the service of witness. The priests bore the responsibility of bearing witness for God to the people. He was the Lord's, they were to be the Lord's messengers. They didn't do it very faithfully, but that was their design. Malachi 2 verse 7, the lips of the priest should preserve knowledge and should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The priests were to teach Israel God's words, reminding them of the law. Leviticus 10 verse 11 says the priests were to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord had spoken to them through Moses. There was a service of sacrifice, a service of witness, a service of intercession. Thirdly, the priests under the law carried the responsibility of interceding for the people, pleading before God on behalf of the people. I mean, everything they did was intercessory, right? They offered the sacrifices on behalf of the people, but they also were to pray and to ask God's favor and mercy be poured out on the people. This intercessory ministry or service was symbolized by their very garments. Remember, the priest carried on him, the when he would offer the sacrifices, a what was called an ephod. It was like a, a, a breastplate. And on that breastplate, he carried the 12 names of the tribes of Israel. In other words, it symbolized that he carried the names of the people before God on their behalf. So it was at the temple that God received the services of his people, whether that was sacrifice or witness or intercession, in other words, the temple was the place where God's people served him. God met with his people. God's glory was revealed in the temple. God received the services of his people in the temple. So now that we understand a little bit more about the temple and the priesthood in the Old Testament, now we're better equipped to understand the nature of the church. And that leads into our fifth or fourth point, I guess. The temple helps us understand the church. The temple helps us understand the church. Paul says the church is God's temple. The church is not a building, of course, made with hands. Rather, the church is a spiritual house composed of, as 1 Peter 2 says, living stones. Living stones. So in a fuller sense, in a fuller sense, what's true of the temple is reflected in the church. It is reflected in the church. Remember, it was in the temple that God met with his people. And in John 4, verse 21, Jesus said that there's a day coming when neither in this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, the old order under the Mosaic Covenant 
where God dwelt in a literal, physical temple with hands, that order was done away with. It was rendered inoperative. And now God dwells among his people in a spiritual temple, the church, composed of both Jew and Gentile, new covenant people of God between the old for Christ's first and second coming. That's what the church is. And he dwells among us by the Holy Spirit. The church is the place where God communes with his people. The church is the place where God has fellowship with his people. The church is the place where God's testimonies, as revealed in Holy Scripture, are confirmed and taught to his people. And that's what Paul's point is in the text. He says, you are God's temple. You are God's temple. Do you not know this, he says, verse 16. In other words, you should know this. It should be intuitive. You are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And, and really, that last little phrase, in you, could very easily, and I think is more accurately translated, among you. He says God's Spirit is among you in the church. And just as the Lord wanted his chosen people, Israel, to know that they were chosen and redeemed out of slavery in Egypt and brought to where they were so that, that God might dwell among them, so God wants you and he wants me as his new covenant people to know that we have been redeemed from slavery to our sin and brought to where we are so that God may dwell among us. God indwells the church collectively, by the Holy Spirit. He is among you. Among you, Paul says in verse 16. The Spirit of God dwells among you. The temple in the Old Covenant, that place of his presence, was meant to reassure Israel as they would look at it that God voluntarily and ongoingly was committed to them. Whenever the people saw the temple, they were reminded God lives among his chosen people. And it's the same for the church. It's the same for the church. When you and I gather together with God's people in the fellowship of the local church, it is a visible reminder that God lives among his chosen people. God's presence, his holiness, his mercy, his grace, his love, his compassion, his generosity are seen and experienced, not perfectly by any stretch, but they are seen and experienced in the visible gathering of his church. So the church becomes the visible manifestation of the Lord's presence among his people. And that is why corporate worship is important. It's important. Remember, not only is it in the temple that God's presence was revealed, but it was in the temple that God's glory was revealed. But now God has created a temple, not a physical temple made out of stones or skin, animal skins as the tabernacle was, but he has created a temple in the hearts of men through faith in Christ. And this new temple, the church, reveals his glory. At least it ought to. 
God's glory fills his temple now just as it did then. Rome, uh, Ephesians 3, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Everything God does and everything God allows ultimately brings him glory and the calling then and building of his church His holy temple puts his glory on display. That's why later on in Ephesians 5, in verse 26, he says, Christ gave himself up for the church so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he may present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. God's glory is revealed in our worship. God's glory is revealed in our holiness. God's glory is revealed in our love for one another, in our singing, in our gospel proclamation, in our giving, in our obedience, in our sacrifice. God's glory is seen in his church. You'll also remember that it was in the temple that God received the services of his people. Under the law, only the tribe of Levi could serve in the temple. Only the Levites. And even then, it had to be a man aged 30 to 50. Before that, you were an apprentice for five years. After that, you retired. Only they were able to serve as priests in the temple. But now, the New Testament tells us every believer, Jew and Gentile, in the church are priests underneath our high priest, Jesus Christ. So if you look at 1 Peter, again, in chapter 2, he says in verse 5, You as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The church, then, is a spiritual house. This is Peter's estimation of the church. And it is the job of the church to be a holy priesthood. So he's kind of conflating things. Just as we're the temple, we're also the priests in the temple ministering. And what the New Testament reveals is that every single believer in the church is a, is a royal priesthood. But unlike the priests of Israel's day who were cut off from God's presence by the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else, now we have unfettered access to God through Jesus Christ. His finished work at the cross has forever, Hebrews says, rent the veil in two. This is a radical change. And it's a tremendous privilege we've been given as a part of the church to be God's temple and his priests. And while we don't offer animal sacrifices at a physical temple, we've been set free from the law. We're not under the law. Paul makes that clear. Yet as priests to God, we still have service to render to God. So what service do we render to God in his church? Well, Paul, I mean, Peter tells us in verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, You offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
The primary sacrifice is your life. Romans 12.1 Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, I implore you to give yourself up as a sacrifice to God. To let your body be a living and holy sacrifice. Your life is to be offered up to God as a sacrifice to serve him. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 15, the sacrifice we offer is a sacrifice of praise to God continually that the fruit of our lips might give thanks to his name. So we offer the sacrifice of our life, the sacrifice of our words, thankfulness, Not only do we offer up the sacrifice of praise to God, but verse 16 of Hebrews 13 says, we're not to neglect doing good or sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So we offer sacrifices by caring for one another, serving in a a practical and material way others, looking out for them, watching out for them, giving them what is needed out of a spirit of generosity and doing good. So we offer the sacrifice, the service of sacrifice, which is our lives and everything connected to our lives, but it's also the service of witness, just like the priests. The priest bore witness to God in the same way in, the same way in his church. We are to proclaim the excellencies. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, they proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. The church is where we proclaim the gospel. It's where we make disciples. It's where we preach the word in season and out of season. We bear witness to Christ. As you walk into our service, it is hopefully saturated with the truth. Our songs are filled with truth. Our preaching is the word of God. Our, our, our fellowship is, should be filled with discussions and things of Christ as we talk with one another, as we pray for one another, as we have conversations with unbelievers, we point them to the hope of the gospel. We bear witness for Christ. So just as the Old Testament priest would offer sacrifice, the service of sacrifice and witness, we also offer the service of intercession to God in his church. We perform a a similar intercessory ministry for one another. We have equal access to God through Jesus Christ. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. Nothing keeps us from that. And so we do that. We intercede for each other through prayer. We pray for physical needs. We pray for spiritual needs. We pray for the gospel to go forth And to be unchained, we pray that unbelievers would give their lives to Christ. We pray for our leaders, those in authority, that we would be able to live peaceful lives in all godliness and dignity. We intercede for one another. And and that ministry of intercession can only happen if we share those needs with one another sometimes. We have to say and tell people what we're struggling with, what we're burdened by, what needs are before us so that they not only would meet those needs if there's a practical thing, but pray for those things on their behalf. You're part of a holy priesthood and the privilege of that priesthood carries with it the responsibility of service in his church. 
So the temple of Christ's church is where God meets with his people. It is where God's glory is revealed. And it is, just as in the Old Testament, where God receives the services of his people. Now, with all of that as a backdrop, we're ready to understand Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 16. For chapter 3, excuse me, verse 16 and 17. And here we see our fifth point, which is the final warning. The final warning. Paul says this, Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. The word... Paul uses for the temple here is a distinct word. It refers to the actual sanctuary of the temple itself. Rather than the, um, it was the place where God dwelt. It was the place where God dwelt. The church, it's distinct from the temple precinct, which is a totally different word. It means like kind of the outer court area. So he's speaking about the place of God's dwelling. He says, Don't you all know collectively that you are the sanctuary of God and that God the Holy Spirit dwells in your midst? Paul is bringing to the foreground this reality that the local church is the corporate place of God's dwelling. Where the gospel is preached in a church with believers, that is a place of God's dwelling. The church, when it gathers in Jesus' name, the church experiences the presence and the power of the Lord Jesus in their midst. And he talks about that in chapter 5. He says, when you come together in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. He's talking about the gathering of the local church. When the church gathers in Jesus' name, they experience the presence and the power of the Lord Jesus in their midst. They should have known that, Paul says. You should know that. The presence of God's Spirit among them marked them out as God's temple in Corinth, as he writes to them. And he says, as God's temple, when the world looks at you, they, were to, they are to see God's presence, they are to see God's glory, and they are to see God's priests rendering service to him in the sense of bearing witness to him and doing that for each other. But the Corinthians, because they were so caught up in worldly wisdom and boasting and divisions, they had, in effect, banished the Holy Spirit from their midst. And as Paul writes to them here, it seems as if they're on their way to destroying the temple in Corinth, in that community. Which is why he gives the warning that he gives in verse 17 to those sowing division in the church, and he warns them to tread very, very lightly. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. It is hard to skirt around that. 
This is a serious warning for you and for me. He says those responsible for dismantling the local church may expect judgment in kind. And the proximity of this verse to verses 13 to 15 makes it hard to understand this as anything other than eternal judgment. Right? I mean, that's what he's talking about. So the threat in verse 17, the warning, is an extension of what he said in verses 10 to 15. It takes that warning to the next step. It takes it to the next step. The whole church is addressed in this. This is a forceful prophetic word from Paul, and it needs to be heard. It needs to be heard. The repetition of the verb here in verse 17, to destroy, shows that the punishment that God renders is not arbitrary, but it is just. If any man destroys the temple of God, literally, destroy him, God will. To engage in that which divides and tears down Christ's church is to destroy God's temple and thus to invite his judgment as a rebellious sinner. You see, remember in verse 15, we said the bad workman at the end, he's still saved. He, he saved yet as through fire, saved by the skin of his teeth, but he is saved. Here, a greater sin abounds than sloppy workmanship, and salvation is nowhere to be found. And the reason this is such a ser deadly serious sin to engage in is in the final clause of verse 17. For that is what you are. For the temple, excuse me, the, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. God is holy. His temple, therefore, is also holy, set apart for his purposes. And as his temple, you are and I, by implication, are also to be holy. Christ's church is set apart for God. Christ's church is to be composed, he says, of living stones. Christ's church is to, Ephesians 4 says, to build itself up in love. It doesn't desecrate itself. It doesn't rip itself apart. It doesn't tear itself down. That's what Satan does. And those who are aligned with him. He's not talking about believers losing their salvation. He's talking about false converts who sow division in the church, rip it apart. God will destroy them. When the world looks at us, they should see God's presence and they should see his glory. They should see his priests joyfully and humbly serving him and one another in the church. But what do they often see in our churches? Partisan rivalry, selfish ambition, grumbling and complaining, callousness to the needs of others, political maneuvering, scheming, all the same stuff you see in the world. These things ought not to be. This warning is a reminder to us 
Not just of what we are not, but it's a reminder of what we are. That's how he ends. He says, you are God's temple. We're God's alternative to a world swirling down the drain to hell. We're a building anchored to the rock in a world of sifting sand. We're a sacred dwelling place of God the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit in a world that is alienated from God and without hope. And so he says, this is what you are. Be that. Be that. And I would just encourage you, as you, like, we are very doctrinally precise church. At least we try to be. As leaders, we, we try to cut it straight. And sometimes I'm, I think we forget that while we need to be holding fast to our convictions, that to hold fast to every single little preference and conviction with such tenacity that we actually rip apart the church, that's a serious, serious mistake. So I, I understand that we need to be willing to take a stand for the truth, and if people don't like that, so be it. I mean, I'm not trying to alienate people, but if that's what it is, it is. At the same time, we cannot die on every hill. Every preference. And I would just encourage you, as you, many of you are probably familiar with a, a fairly well-known church in the area that is going through tremendous turmoil internally. And there are people in that church that are trying to tear the church apart. And I would just encourage you, be very, very careful to look at that and emulate what's going on there. Because unity matters to God. It matters. It is a deadly serious a sin to divide the church. doesn't mean you can't bring your concerns to the leaders. It doesn't mean you can't express in a constructive way uh, and ask, ask questions and help to help us understand. But in the end, if, if the direction of the church is not what you're comfortable with, you better leave that church quietly and intact. Lest God's judgment be rent upon you. So be very, very careful to divide or to add fuel to the division in any other church. When people sometimes will visit and there's some kind of conflict in the churches they're coming from, I'm very, very slow to criticize or say anything negative because... I don't want to add to that. I don't want to be guilty of driving a wedge between the body of Christ. I forget who said it, but there's a really interesting little turn of a phrase. It said, be very slow to criticize another man's bride. Mm 
That's what the church is. Church is the bride of Christ. Be very slow to criticize another man's bride. And that's why, and these, these things are not here because they're easy to do. They require tremendous effort, hum, humility, dying to self day by day. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, with all humility and with gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It takes diligence. It takes effort. And that is why Paul writes what he writes there. And he's going to go on in the next section that we're going to look at next Sunday to help them understand, yet again, kind of summarizing his argument and bringing it all home and help them see who they are and what they have and why that undermines any kind of need for a divisive spirit. Let's pray. Father, uh, we pray that and thank you for the unity and the bonds of peace that have existed in our fellowship for many years. But again, those things are not by any stretch guaranteed. Those things are not by any stretch to be assumed. We need to recognize that our job is not only to take a stand for the truth and to proclaim the good news and to, uh, to preach the word in season and out of season, but our job is also to... Um, mediate your presence in our community to to put Christ on display in our in the world that around us and we pray that we would be that light that scripture calls us to be and that we would love one another care for one another trust in one another above all things that you're at work in and through the challenges and the disagreements think the best Lord, uh, may you continue to build up this church in love that it might attain to the fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.